You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Atlanta Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are live and on location in Ravana. The Ravana. Michigan. Michigan. And we are here at the Crockery Creek Deer Co-op. Uh, we had a nice meeting tonight, and we are discussing all kinds of things habitat-related and all things deer hunting, not even deer hunting. We've talked about all kinds of stuff, uh, hunting heritage, conservation, how to get more hunters, how to gain access to more ground, and we have a wide variety of topics. And we're going to do something a little bit different tonight or today. Um, we have lined out the whole crew, and they have a wide variety of questions. And we're just going to sit down and cycle through a bunch of people of different questions and different tactics and different habitat management projects they're doing on their farm. And I think it's going to be a great time. I'm excited about it because this is something one we haven't done before. We haven't just interviewed just your everyday hunter in this setup and co-ops are growing they're getting bigger across the nation and this is a way for us to um, interview them talk about their experiences and hopefully get more people interested in the co-op and starting one in their own area their own region so we're going to talk to people the presidents the members everything and give a great rundown um, of what a co-op is how to get started and then what it means to be a part of one yeah and I'm nervous. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm thinking about all the questions that they told us they were going to ask, and then I'm sure that they're going to throw some, some random ones out there that we're going to have to be on guard for, and, and hopefully we can answer it correctly. And uh, it's just, I think it's going to be a good time. We're all just hanging out and, uh, and talking wonderful things. So first off, we have got Ryan Umler and... Nate Grisbowski. If I butchered those names, I apologize, but these guys started the co-op here um, in Michigan, and we're just going to ask them a couple questions about, you know, how they got started, the history of the co-op, um, and honestly, why they got started. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit of history about the co-op itself. Um, well, it, it kind of came into full circle one day when uh, I, we had, my wife and I had purchased her grandpa's farm and we didn't live there, we, so I was doing projects on the farm, and I always wanted to meet the guy who had the QDMA sign that lived around the corner, but I could never catch him at his house because he was always busy. Um, so happened to be one day I was working out on the farm there, and all of a sudden, Black Dodge pulls in the driveway, and Nate introduces himself to me, and and uh, and I had some QDMA signs posted on my property too, and finally we met <laughs> and uh and really we had a conversation i don't know probably for an hour and uh and we were just like totally in line with with where we wanted to go with this we we both had the same exact thoughts we both had the same exact name for the co-op it was it was eerie <laughs> and uh and ever since then you know we've been we've been right in line to where we we felt that we were both kind of new coming into the area in the uh we had to get kind of all the neighbors on board with 
just being on the same page, really, not necessarily um, shoving our ideas down everybody's throats, but getting everybody on the same page and getting everybody talking. Because what we had noticed was a lot of the neighbors thought they knew what the other neighbors were doing, but they really didn't. They just made assumptions because they never talked. And since then, we've we've been able to get everybody talking and now all of a sudden these people are realizing that oh so that guy is passing up year and a half year old deer or, or that guy does shoot does you know so that's a br- bringing everybody together i think was probably the, the biggest win for us no um, totally and and that's something I, I don't know what if it's the competitive spirit of just men in general or the competitive spirit of deer hunters, because we're all like after the same buck, it seems like. And so we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to share pictures. And so you automatically get this assumption that, you know, you pass a deer and then the next year you didn't see him. And so, oh, the neighbor shoots him and he shoots young bucks. And and you all have this, this, we all, I say you guys, but it's all of us are guilty of it at some point or another of saying, Man, they're just shooting the young bucks. I'm the only guy around here trying to manage for good deer and good habitat. But if we would just talk and and try to get on the same page, and, and a lot of times just talking, we realize we are on the same page. For sure. It's just that getting over that competitive side of it and, and understanding their strength in numbers. And especially here in Michigan, I mean, we're going to cover this, but there's there has to be a strength in numbers for you guys because if not, you're you're kind of the lone island in a, in a sea of – of competitive unmaintained landscape so yeah i think uh it's it's awesome what you guys are doing yeah yeah it's uh i think it's made a big big difference in the area um we're starting to see a lot bigger bucks um there's been a lot more people getting on board with shooting does um to we're able to hopefully level out that that ratio and and get get a better habitat for the deer that's really encouraging for someone out there who who might be ready to start a co-op but just a little afraid to you know what is what is the outcome going to be you know am i going to see success am i going to find the right people who are like-minded um but that experience this experience with your co-op um hopefully is going to do that for them um what is one piece of advice you would say um or you would give to them as they're getting started keep in mind um what is that piece of advice for them? You're not going to get everybody on board. Great. Um, you you will not get everybody on board. It, and it, don't worry about it. Move on. Go, right. Go find the next guy that will. Because if you got acres around him, I feel sooner or later he's going to be on board. Right. But it's just going to take him seeing the results from the co-op to to get him on board. But there's no sense of sitting there and arguing with them and you're just going to move them further away from it what do you think the biggest fear for people that aren't members of the co-op and you go to them with the co-op hat what do you think the biggest fear for them is i think there's some fear of just maybe they think that we're going to imply rules on them and and that's the furthest thing that nate and i have been on the same stance for that since the beginning of we're going to maybe put some principles out there that that we believe in but we're not going to make anybody do it um from the very beginning we've been first time hunters and youth hunters hey take what makes you happy um and and even some other hunters that you know we're not gonna bash them because 
they shot a year and a half year old deer if that's what made them happy and that's what gets them out in the woods and gets their kids out in the woods so be it um but on the other hand you know we're, we're trying to grow bigger bucks and trying yeah. to build a healthier deer herd shooting does and you know cr- creating better habitat spreading um, the education of what can happen if you do manage that way right um, now if somebody goes against it then so be it whatever but overall it seems like after our conversation in this room you have a i don't know how many guys 20 guys that are all very like-minded in this trying to let them go so they can grow type mindset so yeah and i've met some some very awesome people through this this group that i probably would have never never met before and uh and met some people that i i hang out with now and just I'm not the only deer nut habitat guy in the area. It's nice <laughs> to know there's more crazy yeah. guys like me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Nate, tell me a little bit about like the, the size of this co-op um, and kind of that experience of getting more people involved, um, that it growth over this two, three-year period, um, and where you kind of see it going in the future and how you might be recruiting these new people in the community into this co-op. Right. So we, we started, our very first meeting was actually in my kitchen. Um, I had just finished building my house. We had maybe 10 guys, and those 10 guys represented our direct neighbors. Those were people that they owned property uh, directly next to Ryan or I, um, and we started from there. We, we, we started to kind of get a feel for... Um, kind of the pulse or the culture of the neighborhood you know he might have mentioned it but we were both new to the neighborhood so we didn't want to impose or impart any um any of our uh ideology onto in an area that maybe it wasn't really receptive to so we started with a really small group our direct neighbors kind of got a feel for um if there was any interest and uh i think there was uh, we walked away from that direct or from that from that meeting with our, our our neighbors with a really positive outlook. Um, I think the the feel was that uh, we all wanted to shoot bigger deer. We all wanted a healthier herd, and uh, and that we'd all be willing to contribute to the co-op. So uh, I think we walked away. Ryan and I looked at each other and said, uh, "This is something that maybe would be worthwhile pursuing." So from that first meeting about four years ago, we had. 500 acres ish uh, between those um, 10 landowners um, we're, we're very fortunate here in the West Michigan area to partner with uh, an MUCC affiliate a Michigan United Conservation Club affiliate here in Nirvana and they they've given us the clubhouse to use so we uh, we, we kind of broadcasted a, a wider net to the neighborhood to the to the area to the township uh, try to communicate what we're what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish and um, we held our first uh, official meeting, if you will, from that, that, those, those humble roots in my kitchen. And uh, we had a packed clubhouse, and we walked away from the um, first meeting with 500 and some acres to 5,000 or so acres. Wow. So, um, pretty rapid growth in the first two, two, two years. Um, pretty humbling um but you know there's a there's a there's a desire there's a there's a, some eagerness here in the in the area and there's a, a lot of awareness or or people that are like-minded with us that 
that want to want to improve the hunting culture here in West Michigan. Well, that's super encouraging again to get, you know, that that vibe, that start in an area and then just let it grow um, and you guys just mentoring it through these stages um, and seeing that success um, popularity, that community, that neighborhood outreach. Um, what are some objectives in the future that you see for this co-op specifically in West Michigan? What do you want to see accomplished? Well, well, number one, I'd really like to see our, our doe to buck ratio improve. Um, we have CWD, unfortunately, in a couple of neighboring counties. Um, so I think it's going to be increasingly critical that we we uh, improve that ratio not only to to reduce the uh, the risk of CW, CWD um, transmission, but uh, also to improve the uh, the hunting experience in terms of uh, you know just live interaction with some deer here in in the area. Yeah, I think those are great goals to have, and I. Th- it's very encouraging just through our conversations to hear that it's not just the co-op wasn't formed to everybody kill a four and a half year old buck, but more about let's improve the land and let's let's see if we can get more people involved. And and I know um, you guys are doing some hunts where I think this morning you took a wounded warrior. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, on a on a turkey hunt, and he got was it his first turkey? It was his first turkey. Yeah, and he was. He was pumped up. It now was, you got to tell him what was what's interesting. Not only was it his first turkey, but he's also vegetarian, correct? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so it was actually a hunt that uh, that was through uh, Operation Injured Soldiers was, okay. was the group, and yeah. uh, so um, I had learned about them through my dad. Um, he had gone on a, a few of their their different fishing trips and, and whatnot, and. I felt it was something that I kind of wanted to give back, and I thought a turkey hunt would be cool. So um, I talked with Michelle at um, well, at Operation Injured Soldiers, and she hooked me up with uh, with Frank. And so I started asking a few questions, and um, somehow it came up in the conversation that he was a vegetarian. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, this could be interesting. Yeah. Because <laughs> usually a vegetarian is... He's not out it's, to try and get meat it's the old hunting. Indian. Uh, how did you put it today, Nate? The uh, a bad hunter is. Oh yeah, in, old Indian word for bad hunter. Yeah, he's a, a vegetarian. vegetarian. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but it turns out he can shoot, and <laughs> he did a very good job this morning. So we had a great hunt. Um, I, we had birds in front of us all morning, and and he ended up shooting his first turkey, and he was just ecstatic. I mean, just so thankful and I, I think he's hooked now i think he'll be back out in turkey you, woods you next. shared a story with me you said that after he shot this turkey his wife told him well i guess now you're gonna have to eat it because right? you killed it <laughs> so we so after uh we'd brought the bird up to the house and um he was facetiming with his wife and kids and uh, and yeah so that got brought up in the conversation because and that was one of the things that when i talked to him on the phone in the weeks leading up to this um, cause I was telling them that, you know, I would get, I would like you here early. Um, I'll cook you breakfast and I'd just like to get to know you before we just head out in the woods in the dark, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then that's when the whole vegetarian thing come up. I'm like, well, we can figure something out. And, uh, so the, uh, with the conversation with his wife then afterwards was, yeah, now that you've killed this animal, now you will have to eat it. And so he kind of chuckled that. I don't know if he's quite gone that far yet, but, 
but but At he did say that his, in the right direction. his wife and kids would would definitely uh, eat the meat, and so I cleaned the bird for him, and awesome. Um, and he brought it home, and they're uh, hopefully gonna eat it. Yeah, no <laughs> so. doubt. So who else do I have sitting here with me? Uh, Jason Brosnan. And Jason, um, tell me a little bit about your hunting background. Well, I'm uh, originally from Nebraska, and I moved to Michigan a few years ago, and Michigan has been a real eye-opener for me. It's just a completely different world up here with the number of hunters, how everything is broken up into small patches. Everybody hunts absolutely everything. Um, <laughs> That's one thing we've, we've uh, gathered, Matt and I, being in this, uh, this co-op meeting tonight, is the amount of hunting pressure that you guys face with, yeah. with smaller tracks. And I don't think we covered that earlier, but when we were talking about how um, what the average size of, of the farms around here were, it's much smaller than you're probably used to in Nebraska, I'm yes. sure, and much smaller than what we're used to in Missouri, mm-hmm. people in Iowa. I mean, we're talking people are hunting 10 to 20 acre woodlots. Multiple people hunting 10 to 20. It reminds me a lot of, of the work I've done in Delaware where people talk about, oh, yeah, he's got a big farm. It's, it's 48 acres. And so it, it brings a new appreciation whenever it's like we go back home and we're going to hunt, and it's like, oh, you know, it, it's great up in Michigan, but man, I, I don't know how it'd be. it you you have a few trees to choose from, let alone a few ridges to choose from. Yeah, it's a, it was a little overwhelming getting used to the timber up here versus a ditch or a drainage back home. You know, you know where the deer are going to go, and yeah. you just, that's where you hunt. Yeah, here you got to hunt a little differently. Yeah, uh, totally. But I will say this about the thing: all these Michigan guys here. They sure love their hunting, and that's the that's the one thing I think we can all appreciate is even though they're hunting 20 acres or or maybe bigger, um, you, they still have a love for hunting just like just like we do in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my biggest thing that I've noticed on my farm is I've got about probably 30 hunters that surround my piece, and I try to stay out of the woods, completely out of the woods until it's optimal, and I get in, get out, and then I talk to my neighbors, and they tell me. They haven't been seeing anything while well, they're also shooting their guns the day before opener and riding their four-wheelers all over the place. So yeah, I've essentially made my parcel into a sanctuary. So that's really helped. And, yeah, well, totally. But totally. because of that, I have uh, access is a big problem on my property. I can't get, I'm in the mid- middle of ag country, and I'm the big block of woods. So all the deer are piled in. And I, gotta, I can't hunt certain parts of my property without blowing them all out yeah so getting around is the hard part oh totally yeah so. I, and that makes sense being smaller smaller parcels it's, it's a little more difficult yeah so who else is sitting with us uh my name is mike mike thanks for joining us mike thanks for having me i enjoy your guys uh podcast you guys uh Every time I listen, I want to plant something or cut something or or, or go burn something. That's usually what we get a lot. Yeah. When people listen to the podcast, they're like, boy, you guys really hate cedars, don't you? <laughs> boy, you guys really like fire. And then lately it's been, boy, you guys really like to cut trees. And it's like, what are we, ta- like, what are we saying on the podcast that makes people? And then we go back and we think about it. We're like, oh, yeah. We do talk a lot about TSI and cutting trees yeah. that are there to junk trees. And, and it, we said it last week. We don't hate trees. We actually love trees. We just love healthy trees. So, yeah. It, it gets me excited. I, uh, 
every time I get excited and I come home, I'm like, I go burn something tonight, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your property and what all you're doing there. Uh, Well, I just recently acquired 80 acres here in Ravana. Um, So trying to figure out that property, trying to uh, understand it, uh, what I need to do there. Um, trying to see what's already there, how it's been established, how it's been set up. And then, uh, you know, my biggest thing is probably not to do too much this year and learn it over the next 12 months and then determine, you know, what direction I want to go with it. Totally. What about invasive species? Do you have any? Yeah, uh, there are some, actually there's, there's another piece by 15 miles from here that I do have, um, that there is all on that. There's a lot of uh, autumn olive. Yeah, a lot of um, I was recently had a forester out there to look at it, and uh, the the forester from the state of Michigan told me that uh, he can't really fault people because it wasn't that long ago that the DNR promoted autovolum. Yep, because of how great it was for for the wildlife, but uh, little did they know how quickly it would just simply take over. Oh, totally. Yeah, and it, it was promoted as a natural hedgerow is what I was seeing a lot for screening along roads. And we've worked some properties in Illinois to where they were planting it along roads to try and keep the the people from seeing in, and now it's just taken over the woodlot. So it definitely was, uh, I think, with a lot of government agencies and just people, individual landowners, we've all learned from our mistakes and that's kind of really the foundation of this podcast was we've done a lot of stuff over the years um that that was a it was a uh-oh that was a bad move um sure. and and so hopefully those mistakes teach us to where we can prevent um doing them in the future so hopefully uh, autumn olive is now a problematic species that we're all working to take care of and i know we talked about it in the whole meeting so it's something that I know a lot of the guys are here. Uh, in fact, Jason was, he said he was fighting it today. So yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, that's awesome. Who, who do we, who you have here? Uh, Kyle Rash. Kyle Rash. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, yeah. Kyle. Tell us a little bit about your land. Um, we grow apples, so we have uh, uh, 40 acres that bought up to one of our apple farms. And um, so that's, that's basically the basis of, Apple farms, or, you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah what kind of apples? Oh, a mix? Every kind. A, any, so are any, they dropping during hunting season, I'm sure? Yes. Uh, they, <laughs> the deer are in the orchards, yes. Um, That's awesome. What about um, underneath the orchards? Do you, have, do you plant anything underneath those trees to try and promote uh, better deer hunting? Or is no, it just kind of managing you know, strictly for the, for the yeah, uh, fruit trees? Yeah, strictly for profit. Okay. Um, yeah. The no hinge cutting <laughs> apple trees. I think I heard somebody say that. <laughs> I don't uh, think that. Yeah, I don't think that'd go yeah, over no, very well. Go. Yeah, whether well, they're still alive, Dad, I think they'll be fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, they're just now they're just now growing horizontally, so it's easier to pick. <laughs> yep. No, yep. but yeah, I've, for sure. I mean, I've enjoyed your podcast, and I mean, I've followed you guys since you were with Growing Deer, and that's kind of how. Kind of, I mean, took a lot of time away from my high school schoolwork. <laughs> well, you were still learning. Hopefully, right, you were yeah, just I'm, learning I'm more learning on the on the scientific <laughs> habitat standpoint. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, but yeah, it's, that's awesome. I, I'm I'm happy to hear you've got the fruit trees growing, and right. and uh, I'm sure that's a 
an awesome hunting strategy, especially on years where you've got great production yeah. there. And I can think of a couple times where I hunted a property where there was just a few fruit trees planted. But in my country, you know, Matt and I drove up here today and there was fruit tree orchards all along the interstate. And back home, we just don't have them very much. People would plant them outside their, their house, their farmhouse. So there'd be a dozen of them or so. And, right. and on certain years, there'd be great production with no acorns. And so uh, that was when it was like, okay, we got to hunt the fruit trees. So I imagine that you've got quite the attraction there. So, yeah, yeah. Arkansas black. Do you have any Arkansas blacks? No. None. No, okay. I can't tell you what that is. Oh, man. <laughs> this guy's an apple farmer and he doesn't even know Arkansas blacks. <laughs> Remind me to get my fruit, my apples from somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a quick question, too. Yeah, um, let's hear it. Um, I know you've talked a little bit about soft edges. Well, um, I was kind of wondering the, the uh, possibility of implementing that on a more of a food plot standpoint, standpoint something like a, like a corn versus Absolutely. clover, how, how, that would, how that would work. Oh, for sure. And you can do it, like, as we've we talked so much about soft edges and trying to to try and visualize that is if you have a 100 foot or 75 foot stand of timber and then you go right to a foot tall food plot or maybe it's a lip high with the amount of deer that I, it sounds like you guys have around here to where there's a big step between those two so we're trying to add steps into it picture a staircase where instead of having a, a, a five foot step difference where you have to lunge to try and climb over the wall you have one foot changes and that's basically what we're trying to create so if you can create that it just means you have more edge to where deer feel more comfortable and not only that as we talked about predators earlier coyotes and nest predators is you create more habitat for those smaller game species those rabbits mice rabbits to where hopefully we build those populations up to where the coyotes are predating on those easier animals to to capture than than fawns or or adult deer or even turkeys so you can plant them and we promote this to where you you plant those soft edges the first year and some sort of roundup ready or, or something to where you can kind of take care of the weeds or invasive species that are in it and then you plant more of a perennial with a switchgrass and little blue and and uh, a mix of forbs but the first year and you could do this even if you don't ever want to go to the perennials because you're not sure if you can invest that money and mm -hmm. something may change with the farming operation. You can plant corn or sedan grass or Egyptian wheat, some of these taller species, to, uh, to add that soft edge. So, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The poacher. This is the one guy. <laughs> what did he say? He said uh, when we were talking about uh, trespassing, he said, I said something like, now, can you, in Michigan, is it legal to go on a property without painting? He said, well, it is if you don't get caught. Which is pretty bad, too, because I'm a co-op leader, so. <laughs> yeah, that might, that might be pretty bad if uh, you were the co-op leader and you're out here promoting trespassing. But I know you're totally kidding, but give me a little bit and tell me your name and, and kind of how you're involved with the co-op. So my name's uh, Will Finkler, and I started hunting when I was little and when back then there wasn't very many big deer at all and I happened to get a very nice deer and I'm like yeah this is awesome and then three days later I got the third biggest one in the state so I was like whoo this is really cool and then uh from there I just got hooked I was all in and well I imagine so if you kill that many good deer at right a, at an early age and the first one was was nothing to brag about it's just 
it got the blood going and then the next one was just completely crazy and I couldn't believe it and then I was like I'm just surprised there's not more deer like this out here yeah I started doing more research on it I'm like the only reason why there's big deer is because we're letting them grow and we're passing on these small bucks and luckily I have fantastic neighbors and I owe them all the credit for sure because we're getting bigger and bigger deer and it's great it's it's awesome going back to that what'd you say third biggest in the state yep. what did, yeah third biggest state in the time uh scored 187 and six eights so those... we're coming to michigan <laughs> <laughs> yeah well somebody invited us back up here but we'll, we'll gladly come up here 186 what what year was that that was back in 2012 okay 2012, a 186, third biggest in the state. Um, you say that was because of the neighbors. What were the neighbors doing that, that may have caused the deer to get that big? So a lot of the neighbors, uh, they, like, passed the small bucks, like the one-year-olds. Nothing like three years or anything like that. It's just this really small stuff. And it just happened to keep on getting bigger and bigger. And I'm sure someone's probably saw that buck as a one-year-old and was like, no, nope, I'm just going to let that one go. And then after that, nobody saw him again until the final years. And then I've, I mean, I saw him at dark just going in front of me, driving down the road. I'm just like, had a connection with him. It was very weird, but it was very That's not when you shot him, though, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> didn't, didn't shoot him that time, that's for sure. After your grandma told me, told so, you it was there. So did you, you shot it with a gun or bow? Uh, opening day of gun season, my grandma actually called me, and that's just a whole other story on its own. But We don't have enough time for that, and, and you certainly don't want to share it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> don't have enough time, that's for sure. Okay. It's a good 20-minute story. Oh, gotcha. Oh, that's, so a deer of that caliber, um, you shot it in 2012, and so – was there have since then have you seen many deer or heard of many deer of that caliber around here so no not as big but it's crazy because back then you saw like a 120 class deer and it's like wow that's the biggest thing around here by far and now fast forward a year two years and then it's like okay 130s there's a 130 buck running around and now we started the co-op and two years later, I think there was four 130s taken, and then there's like one 150, which is like a total difference. Like, you can just see it night and day, just looking back at the pictures and stuff like that, which everybody, everybody was on board before it really started, but then the people that weren't on board, when we all came together and we were like, hey, everyone's doing this, and we started showing pictures of like, hey, this is what we have on trail camera, there's some really big bucks out here. And everybody's like, well, I want a big buck. I'm going to pass on this guy right here, and I'm going to go after a bigger one. And it it works. It's crazy. And the people that pass, they actually get bigger deer. It's it's crazy. So it's, that's probably the biggest plus to the co-op is you guys have come together, and now the people that may not even still be involved in the co-op, they're still doing co-op things of passing passing the younger deer. Oh, for sure. It's I just had a conversation with a guy this year. Uh, I had a conversation. He's like, oh, hey, did you see that little six-point? I'm like, oh, yeah. He went right under me, and then he went over to you. And he's like, oh, yeah, 
I, uh, I shot at them, but I, I kind of regret it now because I know there's bigger deer out here, and I missed luckily, but I'm going to go after that bigger deer because I know there's a big one out here. And I'm like, yep, there is. And I sent him a picture of it, and then he's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. I, I like that thing. So he went after that. Sadly, he didn't get it. His dad did, but so be it. So be it. Still have happy hunters. Exactly. And, that's... and and we have happy hunters and hunters that are going to be back next year buying tags and buying gear and doing everything that we need hunters to do um, to, to keep this great sport going. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, last year, my uh, sister, she's not very into hunting at all, but she goes out and she shoots 120 class deer. She is just completely thrilled. And I am more thrilled than like if I were to shoot 150 class deer like just seeing her reaction and all of my friends reactions when they shoot big deer and stuff like that I mean that's what it's all about is seeing everybody just happy as can be and the big smiles on their faces and everything like that oh one, yeah wonderful seeing people experience the outdoors now they've all probably experienced it and they've been on a hike but once they make that first harvest or it really truly enjoy that the hunt of it uh, and seeing the look on their face that's what it's all about and it's actually motivating to to bring out more new people and uh, I mean you took your sister maybe you're gonna take somebody else next year just because you want to see that that first timer experience hunting yeah for sure that's the first time experience is nothing it doesn't matter how big the deer is the first time is just off the chart it's just fantastic if we could bottle that up and sell it we we could have world (laughs) peace that they're all talking about that is for sure that is definitely (laughs) for sure all right i'm going to pass the mic now to matt and he's got another guy in the co-op all righty sir tell me your name and uh, a little bit about your hunting situation yeah, certainly. My name is Jake Coyer, and I am part of the Crockery Creek Co-op. And uh, I want to thank you guys for taking the time to come up here and to uh, answer all our questions. I have a small piece of property um, relative to some of the bigger tracks that are around here. And my question is, what is the biggest improvement I can make to the smallest track property to help with deer hunting? Loaded question, but a great question. And if you're if you're in that situation what's important to consider is what's the surrounding acreage like what does it have in comparison to what your property may or may not have and then from there you have to understand what may be lacking Um, you know if, if there's a great water source on another property and you don't have a water source I would suggest adding one or if there's great cover on adjacent properties and you don't have great cover for or bedding locations or sanctuaries then those need to be created um so basically understanding the area understanding maybe what a neighbor has that you don't have um, and then putting all those together on your property the biggest things what we want to understand and see on a property is food cover security and water and honestly one of those biggest things beyond just the habitat is that security feature do deer feel safe on your property and if you're not providing that with with your presence the human presence you know absent in certain areas um and and then in conjunction with the right habitat cover why would a deer be there during daylight hours do you have the right composition of cover and security are you offering that on your property because others may and then that's why you're not seeing or may, you know, 
be seen infrequent activity on a property. So considering that, is there something that comes to mind that, okay, you know, I know, I know that neighbor, you know, let's say five, 10 years ago, he, uh, he had a forestry operation come through and he's got better cover than me. Does that ring a bell or, or from what you've seen? Oh yeah, certainly. I could say that the adjacent 80 acres to us had that happen 10 years ago. And, um, by far he sees more activity than we do. In fact, we're always in conversation as, um, a group, you know, as uh, a co-op will do, we're always talking to each other um, and finding out what the neighbor guy is seeing. And, and that's exactly the feedback that I'm getting from him um, that, you know, when the forest was harvested, that's exactly something that we need to implement. Um, I guess I'm kind of trying to find that immediate reward for the smallest input, you know, the smallest um, investment that uh, as everybody understands it's hard as a father as a business owner it's difficult to get out there and do those things that you really want to do um, but what can I do that's going to make the biggest improvement the quickest you know right and that that's a great question to to weigh before you even dive into the that property management um, you know, what is it to that assessment? Um, what's the biggest bang for my buck? Um, so I think you're certainly on the right track of understanding and evaluating that property, um, what may be lacking and what am I, what's the biggest return I'm going to get? You know, I was thinking here, I'll, I'll go into that question too, but I thought four states away or how many states away, but he still brought it all the way with him. He brought, he packed it up and he brought the dive on in with him. <laughs> Oh, you know, going back to that question, that's the question. That's what we get a lot is how can I make the biggest improvement in the short amount of time? And, and oftentimes, how can I make an improvement to where I, it doesn't cost a fortune? And that's where going into these timber, timber harvests, um, if, if your timber can allow that to where you can make a harvest, make some money, but in the process, you open up that canopy and you let a lot of early successional plants grow. And that's in, in timber country, that's one thing that we look for the first is the very first time we're there is, is there a timber harvest possible here to where we can make make some money and maybe we don't even, maybe the money isn't pocketed right away uh, to go buy a new truck or whatever. Maybe it's put right back into the property to where, uh, through a TSI project, to where following up that timber harvest, to where now we're in line for another harvest in another 15 years. And, and it's not just taking the crop trees and leaving the crap trees to where that's, that's what's left to, to fill back in the timber, but we've removed them now to where we have the crop trees removed, and now we have the next crop trees, the, the, the next generation for the next harvest. And I think from talking to you, it sounds like timber harvest has been a big part of your area, and it sounds like you're way ahead of, of the game of, of trying to improve the habitat with that. So, Because from what I'm seeing, you guys are either crop or timber, and there's not a whole lot of in-between. Uh, your crop fields look like they just got planted or are in the process of getting planted, but they get tilled over at some point during the fall, and they're pretty well wasteland for the wildlife. And so you're left to your timber um, to where you can manage the habitat. And uh, I know our next guest, he, he you, you have some native grass and, and things in place, but... Um, managing that timber sounds like the is the biggest improvement that you guys will be able to make up here in michigan all right sir tell me your name and give me your question 
my name is Chris Wergel. Um, a question I have is a lot of our properties are small, you know, 10s, 20s, 30s. Mine's 38 acres. And I'm doing as much as I can to improve as much of it. But you got deer coming from every direction. You know, I got people in every direction. But you're always giving up one side or another. Do you have any suggestions? wind-wise or I mean do you just give up on the, the west side deer coming do you focus on one side the other side do you focus on just pulling deer from the south side I mean you're always giving up something on the small going in going out and a lot of us are hunting on cricks you know, crockery creek go up so it's cutting through and there's a lot of low spots a lot of slur swirly winds um, suggestions for that scenarios no doubt, and we, we talk about this a lot, you know, in the podcast or in the field, is, how, yeah, how big is, how big is the creek? Uh, well, it came up 12 feet in this, <laughs> this, this spring, but most of the time it could be three to four feet deep, 20 foot wide, 15, I mean, depends on the spots. Can you boat it? Can you, can you boat it or kayak it or canoe it? It, you can, you can kayak certain sections. Uh, certain people in here do that. Um, I have one time it's I guess that's another question so now if it is 10 20 acres I mean you're not getting away from your kayak too far the other thing is uh, I've sat all day in a pair of waders you got any suggestions for that what do you do with your waders if you you know if you cross it if you cross it I just stuff it right there in the creek bank and leave it right there change clothes right there in the creek bank and but honestly that creek as large of a system as it seems is probably a great travel corridor for deer so we we've done it before in, in kansas um we hunt, hunt have hunted in the off the republican river a lot we cross that creek day in and day out creek it's a river day in and day out and we will carry waders or we'll float it with a canoe um but the change of clothes is right there on the bank we leave it right there and there's there's one stand in particular that you were sitting on the bank overlooking, we had a, a raccoon swim underneath of the stand or wood ducks fly right past eye level with us because of that great travel corridor. Um, I would not be afraid at all to use that to your advantage to for your access um, because that's where in, in some occasions um, you're gonna have consistent winds because of the flow of the creek and use that to your advantage and then use that to your advantage for access too and knowing that, hey, that's a travel corridor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I know I'm going to intercept deer in and around these locations. I'm, I'm going to share maybe a new word to these guys, thermals, being the flatlanders. <laughs> but no, in the Ozarks, thermals plays a huge part, and thermals is a huge part in, in creeks and flows, and, and the guys that have hunted it can probably um, can, can verify that whenever a creek's flowing east to west, whatever the, the flow of the river, that's where your scent usually goes, especially on those cold days. And to me, I actually get a thrill out of hunting a property that has a creek that I can either wade through. At least it, it, it has water that's going to pull scent with it. And uh, to me, I'm not overlooking that strategy at all. And, and in fact, that may be my number one strategy for that property. And going piggybacking off of one guy said earlier is staying out of out of the property when the conditions aren't right just because of the hunting pressure is so high. But then whenever the the conditions are favorable i'm going to use my best strategy as getting in that creek either kayaking it or wading up through it and i'm hunting right on the bank with the wind going 
the, my scent's going right down in the creek, and I'm hunting that travel corridor because I'm sure there's pinches um, right along that river, and I, and I think that would allow you to get into those places and hunt without being detected and silhouetted as you're crossing landscape. Hopefully there's enough bank change to where you're, you're hiding down in the creek as you're, as you're walking through the property. Any other questions, sir, on access? No access, I guess. <laughs> yeah, what do I do with no access? <laughs> um, helicopter, is that an option? Um, you know, you brought up a good point about, you know, hey, when do, which direction do I give up? And I think that's, that's a, a tough thing to do and a tough thing to decide because there's some areas that are made, I know I can kill a great deer here. I know they're going to cross here. I want to hunt it, but what, what time is the most effective? And that's just matching um, and, and concerning probability. 90% of the deer, or, or let's say 70% of the deer, come from this direction. I know 30% come here. Um, yeah, it, it's tough, but you got to weigh out those options um, and just say probability is this um, and kind of go with it when your hands are tied on small properties. But one thing to consider, though, on that small property is exactly what Adam talked about and what Jason brought up earlier is, what if I don't hunt? What if I don't hunt right now? What if I wait? What if I say, okay, I know all these deer are up, they're active because people are pushing them around, they're getting pressure, but what if I leave this as a, as a refuge, as a sanctuary for the time being? I know my property is gonna be great during late season because of maybe some forages I have, maybe some food plots that I've planted. What if during the time where all the other hunters are out there, some unconventional thinking, I'm not going to pressure my property and wait when there's less pressure. They're going to be more consistent. And instead of like 70-30, you know, they're coming from this direction and this direction, 70-30 split. Now it's like a 95-5% later in the season, if that makes sense. Yeah. Then that's when you want to hunt that area. Sometimes sitting out on small properties is honestly your best option. I'm going it, to, it, it's easy to give advice never seeing the property. Um, but one thing that when dealing with property maybe the habitat's not comp I, I don't know if it's ever on point but let's just say the patterns the deer travel is very chaotic it, you really don't know which way they're going or or if they're coming from the neighbor property or if they're if they're walking up the fence line that you're trying to walk in one of the ways that we can re really try to change that is making more defined bedding areas more defined feeding areas more defined bottlenecks as, as far as edge feathering and dropping trees and lowering fences or or whatever we can do to help steer deer and once we've done that then we can hopefully go okay i when we're looking at it from a numbers game saying 90 percent of the deer are traveling up there versus over here i can walk through over here to get to up there and and hunt those deer and not have to and won't be bumping as many but it's more trying to steer the deer and put them in a more confined type area to where I know, based on numbers, that a majority of the deer are up there. And that, that's really how I, I want to look at it. Is if, if I'm having trouble figuring out how I can access, is to look at it, well, how can I really define where they're moving? So, next guest. Tell us your name and kind of how you're involved in the co-op. My name is Tyler Armach. Um, I guess I got involved through Ryan Umler. Um, I work with him, good friend of his, and uh, I, I live not too far from here, so I guess I could be classified as inside the co-op, um, real close anyways. 
Um, my question for you guys is coming from, I'm 21 years old, so younger kid, do not own any property. I live with my parents still. Um, I have permission to hunt my uncle's property, but don't have a ton of permissions to hunt property. Um, I'm, and I'm looking to buy some land. What um, suggestions would you guys have as far as looking for a piece of property at my age, maybe not a huge piece, maximum maybe 40 acres? What are some things you guys would look at when buying that property? Great question. And I think, honestly, the real estate side of things that we do can lead into this. Um, but is that a, that's interviewing or understanding or communicating with the neighbors with that property. You know, 40 acres is going to be you know, semi-limited, but understand before you go in and make that investment or that purchase, who, who's around me? You know, what can I possibly expect? Obviously, you definitely want to look at the habitat too, um, you know, the potential for managing it, um, but understanding the neighbors in that small property size is super important. Adam? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in another, another play into that or another curveball into that is piggybacking on what he just said as far as finding out the neighbors, but also don't overlook that land that nobody else sees the value in. And this is giving away trade secrets, but look for that land that people say, ah, it's, it's too rough to do anything with. Because chances are, if it's too rough to do anything with, or the timber's been harvested out and people are like, well, there's no timber value, chances are those, those properties are a little bit more affordable, but they're also the, the big buyers aren't interested in them. So looking for that property that the timber's been harvested out, it looks trashy. I love, I love it when somebody explains to me a piece of property looks trashy because chances are there's wildlife thriving there because there's a lot of underbrush. And when you see underbrush, chances are uh, people from the city or, or that are used to thinking that you need the park-like setting, they're not interested in it, so you get it at a lower value. So that's, that's, that would be going with what Matt said, look for the neighbors, and then also look for that piece of property that most people are overlooking. I just wish at 21 I was in a position to buy 40 acres. That's all I got to say. I wish I was in a position at 30 to buy 40 acres. <laughs> all right. You got any more questions for us? Nope. On to the next co-op member here. All righty, sir. Yeah, so this is Jake Dykstra, and I've uh, been part of the Crackery Creek Co-op uh, for going on two or three years now. And question for you guys as far as, you know, you've been in this for about a year and a half now and more or less interested in your background as far as, you know, you guys have been doing this. What was the natural transition into land consulting, property ownership? You know, you guys are part of Missouri, and now you're here in Michigan. What, whereabouts do you guys see yourself in two or three years, five years, ten years? Is this a full-time gig for you guys? And Loaded question, but, uh, you know, further down the road, where do you see this going, and how do you see yourself progressing in the years to come? Does he know this is an hour podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how he said question, but he asked us like ten of them. <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do with that? we got ten minutes left. <laughs> So anyway, um, you know, I think it's that's a very good question, and, and I, in fact, I wasn't really expecting that in this podcast. But you know, in five years from now, in the in the short time, Land and Legacy is from the creation year and a half. We've been so blessed to be in in numerous states, from Delaware to Texas, and all the way in the South, all the way up to now Michigan, and and it's 
for us, this whole journey has been about helping people improve the land, not just for better deer hunting. That's just a product of improving the land, but helping people understand the value of land and how to improve it to where when we all part this earth that we can look back and say, man, we, we did some good. We left a legacy on that land to where hopefully generations from now are going to look back and say, man, that guy knew what he was doing. I want to continue. I want to pick up that torch and carry it and improve it. And so for us, regardless of where this venture leads us, is hopefully we're consulting in five years and, and uh, hopefully we have a lot more things going on and there's more videos coming out. But overall, we just hope we're still inspiring people to to improve the land and and not just improve the land but introduce new people to the outdoors yeah that's for sure the overall message the the backbone of why we're here why we want to do this four five ten twenty years down the road and yes this is you know full-time gig this is what we do this is what we set out to do um and we do we are real estate agents in missouri licensed in missouri um, that takes up a portion of of our time but honestly I would say 80% of our time is devoted straight to land and legacy consulting working with landowners existing clients um, and trying to make and find new clients to work with and improve those um, acres whether it is 10 acres 20 acres 400 acres or 2,000 acres it doesn't matter um, if you have property if you have land you have a commitment you have a responsibility to that land um, to be a good steward of it and and hopefully like we said with the film with the podcast um, with coming out and meeting landowners in Michigan western Michigan hopefully that's a, a message that can be conveyed yeah, and I think boy that was that was a really good question I applaud you for that because that's uh that that opens a whole well here I'm gonna pack it up and bring it all the way to Michigan I'm gonna open up a can of worms um, with that and so I think this is something I, I my wife we've we've laughed about this is she'll say boy I'd like to retire and move to this place and I'm like why are we gonna retire I I don't see myself in 30 years being ready to hang this hat up of consulting and helping landowners I feel like some of the stuff we preach oftentimes is one of those things I, I remember in college having a guy come in and he was gray headed and, and he's talking about improving the land. And I'm like, ah, oh, this old man, he's like, he's ready to just hang it up. And he's like, ah, oh, whatever. That's like the old man thing to preach is conservation and all this stuff. And I'm like, I just want to kill big deer. But now here I am, I'm 30. I'm like, I really want to, I'm preaching this, the same stuff that that gray headed old man was. And, and now I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, at, at when I'm 60, 30 years from now, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to be even more on fire to improve the land and, and pass it on than I am now. And I don't know how that's possible because I feel like I, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, well, how am I going to improve some land today or help a landowner today? And, and we, we talked about, I asked you guys about the native habitat, and that's something that just always interests me. And I was looking up kind of southwest Michigan what the native habitat is and you know there was there was a big chunk and ch chunk of your state that is oak savanna and <laughs> how many oak savannas did we drive by today Matt zero there was just none but that's a big part and when you look at the big monster 300 plus year old white oak trees and they have wolfy wolfy is the term to where it's got limbs all up on the bottom but those lower limbs are starting to die out that tells us at one point that was an oak savanna and now it's it's uh basically 
pruning off those lower limbs to put more energy into the upper limbs because it can't, it, it's not going to waste the energy on, the, on those lower limbs. And so to me, I'm like, everywhere you go, there's habitat that needs to be improved. And there's, there's people that need to be educated and helped on how they can make the biggest bang for their buck. And that's what, that's really, hopefully to answer your question in a, in a, five-minute rant hopefully that gives you some idea what we're talking about and the the crazy thing to think about is wildlife management or conservation as a whole really is a very young principle when you when you look at it or compare it to mathematics mathematics has been around forever so we're talking about like okay 30 years from now look at all the information that um, is out there right now about wildlife management that really started in the 1930s and 40s and got going from there. And even within the last 10 years, how much have we learned about our natural environment by looking at history? What else is going to come out in that next 30 years um, or the next 60 years that we can learn and apply to our natural systems? Um, you know, that's encouraging for us. It's like, do I see myself changing what I'm doing? Not really, because every single day there's something new, there's something else that we can learn that's encouraging that we can apply um, and make it all much better. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, and uh, it's promising to see the, where you guys have gone with this just in a year and a half. And, you know, from Missouri to Delaware, it sounds like, and now to Michigan, you know, we wish you the best in uh, the future years that you guys have here. And, uh, you know, you never know where the Lord takes you. And, we wish you the best. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. Um, we've been extremely blessed, and um, you know, it, it's, it's been awesome to meet everyone, to meet you guys. Sir, we've got another guy coming up here. What we got? Uh, my name's Jeff. I'm a co-op member of the Crocker Creek Co-op. Um, my question, the property I hunt is more of a travel corridor between rotating crops of corn and soybean. It's got a creek and a couple ponds that are on the property. I've got a spot for a food plot. My question is, what would you recommend to plant as a supplement to the corn and soybean? Great question. And I think there's a couple key things in there that is going to really dictate what answer honestly is provided you said transition area you said a couple ponds and when i think of transition area when am i when am i going to find the most success hunting wise in a transition area and that's when bucks are most active that's when you know it's early november and bucks are getting ready to chase they're they're actively chasing they're finding they're seeking out these does and they're working these transition areas from a to b to find them or they're chasing them in them um so what can i provide in that area or in the ponds too. You know, if you have a warm November, man, they're gonna be seeking those ponds. They're gonna be, because they're chasing so much, they're so active, they need, um, they need that water resource. So, sounds like a great piece, but to um, add to that, anything that is, is honestly a, um, at that time frame, a cool season, um, I wouldn't go anything heavy grains because you got it right there, but a cool season um, mixture, annual mixture that has brassicas, wheat, some annual clovers, anything, a blend like that that's inclusive um, has diversity because then that way, if you are hunting earlier in the season, um, that blend's going to offer different forages earlier on that are, um, you know, more palatable then. Um, but then you've got so much in that window, that time frame, 
um, that is extremely palatable with that mixture of cool season annuals, the clovers, the wheat, the rye, the oats, the brassicas, the turnips, blend it and let it honestly just do its magic um, because that's, that's your window to strike in that, in that situation, that property. You probably experienced that and say, you know, I could hunt in October, but I'm not gonna see as many as I am during November and that, that time frame. So let's, let's match that time frame or the optimal time frame to hunt with that forage. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Ryan's back up here. Do we have a zinger? A, a good know, question I don't here? Know if it's a zinger, but I see the time running out, so I need to get in there. No, uh, so in the in a lot of these creek bottoms, we have a lot of ash trees, and we got hit really hard with the emerald ash borer. So a lot of our creek bottoms are just dead standing poles. Um, what should we be doing? Should we be dropping those before they end up in widowmakers? And then once we do drop them, what should should we be doing anything to that area? Obviously, a lot of their area is wet most of the year. Um, what what are some things that we could be doing in that in those areas to improve the habitat? Great question. Um, what I would suspect is going to come back are um, things like deer tongue or a, a panic grass, um, a wild, uh, river oats. Um, and other forages like a that. A bunch of sedge. If yeah. you say it's low ground, I'm, I'm sure sedges and rushes are going to come in, some of those wetland species. I'm curious, once those trees died, did you notice a increase of growth on the forest floor, like once that canopy was opened up? Did you, have you noticed much of that? Uh, yeah, a lot of poison ivy. <laughs> po- poison ivy is great deer forage. Seriously. Uh, I guess my guess my comparison is even though it's it's my kryptonite I I like I I'm completely allergic to it but it's still it's one of those kind of things where it's like boy I hate it when it gets on me but as long as it's out there and I'm over here I'm good with it so I'm not I'm not too upset with poison ivy no and that's the that's the thing you know what was there before an ash tree did it benefit a lot of species maybe not but that dead snag is now a it's probably offering some nest or, 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 you know, secondary um, cavity nesters, different types of birds, um, a home. And now it's, it's getting sunlight down to the forest floor. So if we look at it from like just a broader spectrum, I've got poison ivy, which I didn't have before. I've got some um, sedges. I've got some of that uh, river oats that's going to provide a little bit more additional cover, especially during fawning seasons, things like that. Maybe, maybe I'm not going to wish all ash trees to go away by any means. Um, but maybe in certain areas, certain pockets, that could be a good thing. It could provide additional habitat. Um, you know, it, it kind of depends on the way you look at it. But um, to me, I, I look at it as kind of a positive, honestly. And it's one of those things that we can't control, really. I mean, if you have a few ash trees that are still 50% or more foliage and, and you want to say those, you certainly can. There's ways to help fight it. But on the flip side of that is... As Matt said, there's really there wasn't a huge benefit in that to a multitude of species, but now you have a lot of poison ivy, which is great forage. But then when it makes berries, you have great forage for for birds as well. So you kind of have two positives, and and it offers more cover than a than a full full mature tree. So you know it's one of those things that maybe we're we're going to look at the glass half full here and say, hey, you know it's even though we can't we couldn't prevent it maybe it's not all bad maybe it's still going to increase some habitat so um yeah i don't think it's a it's a total loss now when it comes to labor 
Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't devote a lot of time into trying to drop these ash trees and, and cut them and clean them up. I would let them break down over time. And, and you know, there's some where you're going to have to be cautious that hopefully I would. Now, I wouldn't probably go in there and hunt in the middle of an ash tree uh, forest with a big windstorm coming up. Now, I wouldn't do that. That would be kind of suicidal. But um, I would definitely not waste a lot of energy on trying to clean it up. I, w- I, I totally agree. Um, ex- you know, unless there's that one that's crossing the, the, the road, your access trail or whatever, you know, go ahead, expedite the process. It's going to fall, cut it, get it out of the way so you don't have to worry about it. Tripping over it in a morning situation, going in blind to a stand or something like that. But overall, um, it, unfortunately, um, yes, they're dying, but it's a natural process of what hopefully is occurring and, and coming back. Now, if you find invasives that start to creep in um, back home in, in the eastern United States, we'd have Japanese stilt grass that just very, very quickly grew in that area. And then I'd be like, well, now we got now we got an issue. Right now, if it's natural regeneration, broadleafs, um, or something that's going to provide the cover, let it roll. I think that honestly wraps it up. Is no, we still have a would you rather, um, and, and I asked these guys if they had a would you rather for us, um, and one of the first ones I got was would you rather hunt a swamp, now this is Michigan, so pretend that we came back up here in the fall, and they ask us, hey, do you want to go to a swamp, or do you want to go to a a field edge? Now, kind of broad. But for me, I would automatically say, well, with the amount of pressure that it sounds like that is happening here on, in, in southwest Michigan, it sounds like smaller, smaller uh, property parcels, sounds like there's a lot of hunting pressure. A field edge to me sounds like a place that's going to happen. Most of the activity is going to be at night because of the fact that they don't want to move during the day because they're probably already pressured. And the swamps are po- most likely a place where a lot of people aren't going to go. Um, and so I'm going to choose swamp, and I'm sure you're going to choose the same thing, right? I see you shaking your head. Yep, we're in agreement that we would both choose a swamp. Now, we usually do too. So does anybody else have any would-you-rathers here? Um, Matt and I played a game um, while they are thinking, and if you guys think of something, raise your hand and yell it up here at us. But... I know Matt and I played a game the whole way up here. Would you rather, and it was like Maine or South Carolina? Would we rather go Minnesota or Florida? Would we rather go um, where, I don't even remember. We played so many of those on the way up here. But anybody got anything? Still nothing? Would we rather hunt Michigan or Missouri? <laughs> Is that even a question? <laughs> No, I uh, I would have to say just because it's my home state, but I would always go Missouri. But uh, no, I think uh, you know one thing that has that Michigan is known for is honestly the camaraderie. It's here in this group. I would totally love to experience that because seriously, like Michigan is known for like high deer density. Deer camp, yeah, and the, the UUP and everything like that. So that's something that's really um, traditional and here in Michigan. So, you know, yeah, I would rather – my chances are better probably in Missouri for harvesting an upper-age class buck. But seriously, what you guys have um, and everyone else knows that you have and it's probably jealous is deer camp and the co-op and the camaraderie. Um, so seriously, that, that's a big part of it. 
You like that answer? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Totally pulled that out of your hat. Um, I think uh, that, that's exactly right as far as uh, the deer camp type thing. Um, and we've said that a lot, I think. Would you rather... You actually asked me that a while back. Would I rather do deer camp in Michigan or hunt by myself somewhere? And I said yeah. I'd rather... I'd rather do, yeah, I said I'd rather do deer camp in PA just because the hunting culture, I think, when I think of hunting culture, I don't think of, of enjoy, ch- chasing a big deer. I think of the buddies and the, and the people and the relationships that you get to go back to at camp and tell them all about it. And, and that, one thing's for sure, it's, it's strong up here in Michigan, and, and uh, I think a lot of states should be jealous of that. Um, so, anyway... Would I you think rather that, shoot a 150-inch buck or take a young kid or a first-time hunter out and have them shoot a 100-inch buck? Oh, that's, that's a no-brainer for us. Uh, and I think that's hopefully something, that's a great question, I think that's hopefully something that, that we strive for more as hunters um, and trying to build this culture because it's, it's totally at war right now with the outside hunters of trying to take our rights of, of enjoying the outdoors. And, and so his question was, would we rather take a, um, a kid hunting to kill a 110-inch or a 100-inch buck? It really doesn't matter. I didn't, it it's basically comes down to would you rather take a first-time hunter or take a kid hunting or go out and kill a 150 by, our, by ourselves. And, and it's totally... It, I hope everyone's answer is I would rather take a kid and, and pass on that hunting tradition just because um, there was a time I think every one of us could look in the mirror and say, yes, I'd rather kill the 150. But at some point, hopefully we reach that point where we're like, I, I need to take a kid hunting. I need to, not even just a kid, but I need to take that guy that's in the cubicle down the, down the aisle from me that's never been, I need to take him. Or maybe that, that cop that pulled me over last week for speeding through town and he's never been hunting maybe I need to just be take the high road and take him hunting so that's definitely a good question I think hopefully more and more people are are going to start thinking about that and doing Matt anything else nothing nothing I think that pretty well wraps us up up here oh we got one more thing I just think that Ryan and I would be remiss if we didn't uh, give a few thank yous to number one our fathers for introducing us to the outdoors um, unfortunately, my dad couldn't be here today. Um, he's off uh, enjoying himself on the beach, but uh, we could probably record an entire podcast with some of his questions. Um, number two, uh, Brian Toe, who's the co-op coordinator in your home state. Uh, just by happenstance, he happened to be in Grand Rapids during our first meeting and was a, a major inspiration to, to Ryan and I. And uh, Anna Mitterling, who was, uh, unfortunately, she stepped down as the co-op coordinator here in Michigan. She was a a major influence for Ryan and I. Uh, Unlike so many people in this world, she had her priorities in line and stepped down to raise her family, but left left, uh, the the QDMA and the hunting community here in Michigan a much better place than when she began. So uh, we're thankful for all their efforts, and we're thankful for you guys for coming out and... uh, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, listening to many more podcasts from you both. We appreciate it, and certainly uh, appreciate you guys having us up here. It's been a blast in Michigan, and you know that's uh, we appreciate you thinking those people that were very instrumental in you guys starting the co-op, and and hopefully this podcast, if anything else, has inspired people to start co-ops in their neighborhood to where we can bring hunters closer together, working together to improve habitat and improve the hunting community. I don't think we can say anything else. That's a wrap.
that's pretty well a wrap up here in Michigan, and uh, we will see you all next week. See ya. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.